You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Hey, uh, good morning. How's everybody doing? <laughs> uh, my name's Brian. I think they're working on the TV. I'm not sure what's happening. Oh, there it goes. Technology is great until it's not great, right? And then we all hate it. All right, so um, hey, if I don't know you, my name is Brian. I am the lead pastor here at uh, Grace City, and so uh, thanks so much for um, being here as we're moving into uh, a new year. So we're into 2023. uh, So we all made it. Uh, We're here together. Uh, Congratulations um, in in making the new year. Uh, Here's kind of the question uh, that I've been thinking about, kind of as I'm kind of processing and. Uh, moving into 2023, it kind of anytime you move into a new year, it kind of lends itself towards uh, kind of just considering uh, life, thinking about uh, the the year before, and moving into uh, the year ahead. And so here's kind of the the question uh, that I've been kind of pondering on is is how do I or, or we could say we collectively as a church, since we're all all here together, uh, how do I move forward uh, in my life with God? So as I kind of think about just everything that's kind of going on uh, around me, as I think my own kind of personal journey, um, where I kind of find myself, the question that I've just been kind of thinking about is moving into 2023, is how do I continue to uh, move forward um, in my life with with God, right? Um, we're in 2023, right? We, we uh, So 2020, right, uh, we were all like, this is going to be my year. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, churches were like doing sermon series called Vision 2020, you know? It's like, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be the year. 2020 is going to be the year. And, and then 2020 wasn't the year, whatever the year means. And then you get into 2021 and you're like, no, this is it, right? You're like, this is like 2020, 2021 couldn't possibly uh, be worse than 2020. And then we got into 2021 and we were like, Okay, all right, so now we, we've had 2021, and now you get into 2022, and you're like, uh, 2022, this is, this is, this is going to be it. And 2022, for many of you, um, maybe it wasn't the year. Uh, could, we, could we, let's just do this. Could we like agree together? Could we collectively retire the statement? Um, could we collectively just kind of retire the statement that like, this is going to be my year? Do you know what I mean? Like the best is yet to come. Can we like collectively just kind of, uh, because the reality is, right? Because I'm thinking about 2023 and, and there's very much the reality, right? This is kind of where I'm at as I'm thinking about it. Um, is 2023 may not be your year. Uh, 2022 may have not been your year. And now we're in 2023 and you're like, oh gosh, another one uh, in front of me, right? And so maybe you came here and you're like, give me the 2023 pump up speech. You know, like get, like give it to me. I'm ready to receive it. Like I want to have it this morning. I'm going to leave with that. And I just want to say, you're probably not going to get that this morning. Now, hopefully what you're going to get is, is, is helpful. Hopefully it's God honoring uh, from the scripture. Um, but that's probably not going to be it. It's kind of this New Year's kind of fired up speech. But I do want to address the question of how do we move forward? How do you, how do I move forward in life with God? And so we're going to be looking at um, the book of, of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel is, is shockingly similar to the kind of current kind of cultural moment that we uh, find ourselves 
in and thinking about. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll just kind of uh, we'll kind of get right into it. God, we um, are grateful that you uh, give us life with you. And so, God, we just ask that um, as we spend a bit of a time in your scripture, God, we ask the Holy Spirit to uh, use this time, uh, that the Holy Spirit would bring about uh, clarity and um, conviction and truth. God, where um, areas of our life that need to be revealed and given over to you, that, that you would give us the power to do that this morning. God, we thank you that you're not silent, that you have something to say, um, that you, you, you want to be heard from. And so, God, we just um, invite you uh, to take over in this space, that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you should pull it out because it doesn't look like we have it on the screen. And so, uh, oh, do we have it? Oh, God's good, man. All right, here we go. Daniel 1 or the tech guys. All right, so Chance and Cohen. All right, here we go. Uh, Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. Let's kind of work through this a bit um, together. It says, In the third year of the reign of King uh, Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Um, okay, so now it's important as we're thinking about the story of of Daniel, um, it's important to kind of understand two things, right? So there's very much something going on 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 kind of a surface level that you can look at and see, and then there's another aspect or element to the story uh, that I think is the most important aspect and element of the story uh, that's going on underneath uh, the kind of surface level of what we can see. So let's look at the surface level first, and then we'll drop into the kind of deeper, more subtle. Um, level. So one of the strategies for a conquering nation uh, is when they come into a nation, they don't simply want to destroy a nation uh, as what's happening in this moment with Babylon uh, coming into the nation of Israel, into Jerusalem to destroy it. Uh, they want to systematically take it apart. Uh, this is kind of the military genius of, of the time. They weren't simply just kind of coming in. So you, so you have this great military power, right? So Babylon is this military power. You would have Persia that would come in after them. You would have Rome uh, eventually. And, and so they, these dominant kind of powers in the Middle East, they, they would come in, in the world in general, would come in. And they don't just want to like take it all apart. Uh, they want to systematically uh, kind of do this type of work. And so what we know is that Nebuchadnezzar in 1587 came into Jerusalem and just razored it to the ground, uh, just burned it to the ground, broke down the temple, uh, was just a destructive um, period in the history of God's people. This was in 587 uh, BC. Uh, but what we actually know, this is kind of the, 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 that's like the historic destruction of Jerusalem that when you think about it, it gets talked about a lot. Uh, but what, what we actually know is that he actually came 10 years before that. Uh, and 10 years before that, Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. And what he told his people is he said, I want you to take 10,000 professionals from the city. So I want you to take the 10,000 um, of the brightest professionals of Israel, and I want you to bring them. So this would have been the leaders of the military, the government, the arts, education, scholars, um, all those who uh, had any kind of like wisdom. He basically said, I want you to take these 10,000 professionals and bring them back to Babylon. So this is kind of what's happening at a uh, kind of surface level is you have a larger nation, a larger, more powerful nation doing what a larger, more powerful nation does, right? All throughout history. Now, all, all of these larger, more powerful nations at some point, what? They fall to a larger, more powerful nation. That's kind of the way that life works. Um, but this is what's happening on the surface. We, we just historically, this is what we're talking about in this moment. This is what we're seeing going on with Jerusalem. 
Now, there's an underground kind of thing that's going on as well that's at a much more important kind of deeper level that I want us to hang out for a bit. And we see that happen um, in verse 2. So here's Daniel 1, verse 2. It says, the Lord handed, says the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, here's what sticks out at the very beginning of Daniel and actually carries itself all the way through the book of Daniel. The, the underground kind of thing that's going on is that God is controlling the narrative. Like the, the theme, essentially the theme of Daniel is that God is in control, that, that he's in control. If you, if you look at the scripture, um, this is what it's saying, that he's doing this. We see in verse two, it says the Lord handed them over. If you look in verse nine, it says God granted. If you look in verse 17, it says God gave. All throughout, we're just talking chapter one, all throughout the narrative, it says, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. So on a service level, you could say, oh, no, this is the nation, powerful nation doing what powerful nations do. And then people are just trying to survive. The Israelites are just trying to survive. But it's actually the book of Daniel, the book's actually doing is saying, God is sovereignly in control of all of this. He's controlling the narrative. Uh, we actually know in Isaiah 39, if you go back, the prophet actually told the Israelites that Babylon would take them, that this was coming as a result of their rebellion. Now, this is an important place. I want to pause here for a second because I, I think it's an important place to um, pause, right? Because we can look at the story of Daniel, and maybe you've looked at, maybe this is the way you've read it, and I've read it this way in the past. Maybe you looked at the story of Daniel and you're like, man, those guys just had tremendous amounts of courage. Like their self-control and discipline was amazing. And, and, and you could read the story of Daniel that, that way, and it's not necessarily wrong, per se, to, to kind of pull from that. I mean, we'll, we'll see some of that in a second. I mean, like, their discipline, their self-control, um, their kind of awareness of things, like, was an important thing. It's just not the most important thing about the book of Daniel. Um, the most important thing about the book of Daniel is that God is in control, you're not going to be here this morning uh, and hear Daniel's story as a launching pad to your 2023 resolution. Uh, it wasn't his discipline that anchored him. It wasn't his self-control that was carrying him. It was a firm belief that God does not abandon his people, that God cares for his people. That's what's enabling Daniel to make the decisions that he's making. It's not his genetics. Uh, it's not that he's top, top of the class, top of the kind of uh, financial spectrum, right, upper class. It's a firm belief that comes from a, um, comes from a, a deep-seated kind of belief in Israel's God that God is in control. And it's his anchor. And so the primary purpose of the text that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks um, is not to teach us how to behave or to live, um, but rather to what? To point us to God. That the, the book of Daniel, and Daniel is first and foremost a revelation of God. Um, God doesn't reveal himself to us in abstract, but, whether, uh, but rather in relationship to his people and through actions in history. And so this is what we see, Daniel 1, from the very first verses, we see that this book is essentially not about Daniel, but about God. 
from the very beginning. It's a revelation of who he is and how he acts in our redemption. For, for some of you this morning, right? And we're going to get into some stuff here in a second about how they were kind of navigating in their cultural moment. I think it's important. But for some of you this morning, all you need to hear is that regardless of what your circumstances would say to you, that God is in control. That he's in control. Like that, that's just what you need to hear this morning. Like, like you can take, maybe take away some of the other stuff that we're gonna look at and it'll be super, super helpful for you. But maybe this morning, all you need to hear is that God doesn't abandon his people. That God cares and loves his people. That he's committed himself, right? That's what we know through Jesus. God's committed himself to his people through Christ. He's not abandoned us. This is, the, this is what we're seeing. Uh, some of you walked through 2022 with a tremendous amount of sadness, confusion, dis, uh, disappointment. Some of you woke up January 1, 2023 with the same sense of sadness, confusion, and disappointment. And, and I just wanna say to you this morning that God's not abandoned you, that he's not. He's faithful to his promises and to his people. Okay, um, let's, let's continue on. Uh, verse three, Daniel 1, verse three. Let's, let's kind of move on. So we're thinking about this idea, this kind of le ground level idea that God is sovereignly in control of all these things. Verse three, it says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Uh, verse four, young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction, all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them uh, the Chaldean language and literature. That just means Babylonian language and literature. Same thing. Uh, verse five, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They would be trained for three years. So here's the process that they're gonna be working through. They'd be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Uh, among them from the Judaites was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief unit gave them names. So they're gonna give them new names. It's fascinating what's happening. It says he gave the name of Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, uh, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azra. Okay, so two things I wanna look at. Here, here's what I wanna look at as we think about this, um, this story. Because it's gonna be, there's, I think, two ways in which we can learn from this. Um, here's the first one. Uh, it's gonna inform us uh, what, to look at, what to look out for in our kind of cult, uh, current cultural moment. This is the gift that Daniel's gonna give us. It's gonna inform us what to look out for. And the second thing that it's gonna do is it's gonna inform uh, to us how we should operate in our kind of cultural moment, in the current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So firstly, it informs us what to look out for. Okay, so this is fascinating. It's pretty instructive. Um, so, so Babylon has taken down Jerusalem. Uh, that's what's happened. Uh, the, God's people are, are conquered. Um, and here's the genius of Nebuchadnezzar. Here, here's what he knows, right? Um, he, he knows that instead of destroying the nation, like and just straight up destroying the nation, killing all the people, that if you want to make a vassal nation um, subject to the Babylonian will, uh, if you want to do that, um, then what you do is, is pretty simple. Uh, if you want to fit into this empire, you take the leaders of the culture, you bring them into Babylon, right? And you, uh, you Babylonize them, right? You... you like Kev, King Kevin Nebuchadnezzar was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Israelites and I want the Israelites, if this is really going to work out as I'm conquering these nations, 
if I'm going to squash rebellion, right? If I'm going to control from afar, all these types of things. He says, what you want to do is you want the nation that you're conquering, which are the Israelites, you want them to look like Babylonians. You want a people who used to be a distinct people, right? The Israelites, so the Israelites were uh, monotheistic, right? They believed in one God. Uh, the Babylonians were polytheistic, so they believed in a plurality of gods. And so what Nebuchadnezzar knew is he, he said, man, I want the Israelites to now look like the culture that they now find themselves in. Does that sound familiar? I want, want them to not look distinct. Uh, I want them to have the same worldview, have the same desires, have the same goals, have the same objectives. This is what Babylon was seeking to do over God's people. He wanted them to look just like Babylon. And so look, look at the, the, the way that he's, he's doing it, right? And, and this is why the book of Daniel is such an instructive book um, for believers and for the Christian church uh, is because it gives us a tremendous, a tremendous amount of insight. Uh, look at verse seven. Verse seven is kind of the crux of what we see here. Um, it says that Daniel, uh, Daniel, the Hebrew name of Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. Belzazar, the name that was changed, the Babylonian name that was changed, means Bel is my God. Bel is a Babylonian God. So, so in a very kind of base level, it's kind of this change from Daniel, which means God is my judge, to now this Babylonian God is my God. Uh, Babylonian, um, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar were practicing a type of what I would call um, subversive assimilation into their culture. So, so if you look at the, the text, um, you see that they're, they're trying to change their beliefs and motives. They're trying to change their allegiance, their worldview. Um, but they knew, it, here's the thing, right? They, they knew they couldn't just form them into something. Actually, what happens is, is a type of deformation before formation, right? So they're going to try to break down who they are. So, so here's the thing. So if you're a follower of Christ, if you're here, you identify as a follower of Christ. I know not everyone is. Um, but if you're here and you identify as a follower of Christ, you have what? Uh, you have a distinct um, identity and worldview. Uh, you have distinct goals and um, objectives and ways to live that are what? That are um, given to us, informed by scriptures, informed by the Holy Spirit, informed by the historical church. Like that's who we are. But, but the, the enemy knows that in order to uh, and that's who Babylon was, right? So Babylon was God's enemy. It's really fascinating. We can't get into all of it, but um, from, from, if you read the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, what you'll actually see is that God's enemies are going to be referred to as Babylon all throughout the scripture. Not, not just talking about this nation, but in general, Babylon as a um, opposition to God. That's Babylon. You'll see it in the scriptures if you read it long enough, you see it. And so what God's enemy was seeking to do is deform before form these men, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all the Israelites who were brought in, had to be deformed before they were formed. Now, now look at the text. Look, look what it, it, it says, right? Um, was Babylon trying to seek them, uh, trying to form them through force? Mm, maybe. 
was it even explicit the way that they were seeking to do it? Look, look, look what the text says. The text says that Babylon was doing what? It was bringing them the best the food from the king's table, wine from the king's table, the, the best teachers in Babylon bring you the best literature in Babylon, right? Like, like they're, they're laying before you, these, these, uh, these young Israelites the, the best that their nation has to offer. They're essentially saying, what is, what's Babylon essentially saying? Like, this is what? Like, this is the best. This is, this is flourishing. If, if you want to be a person who flourishes, then you follow the Babylonian way. This is the, for all intents and purposes, this is the good life. This is, this is what it was. I mean, I mean, think about it, our own kind of like cultural moment, right? Like everything that we see, everything that's uh, put before us is, is saying to us what? This is the good life. This relationship, this vocation, this, this monetary amount, this whatever, whatever, whatever. This is the good life. This we've been sold our whole life. That if you want to experience the good life, this is what you do. Is it not, Right? We're not, we're not seeing, we're not being, like, we're not being pushed a kind of narrative that's like, hey, actually, this life is really disappointing and will leave you lonely, anxious, and sad, right? No one's watching that show, reading that book or the magazine, no. It's like, this is the good life. And if you want to experience the good life, then you do this. It's deformation before it is formation, um, this is what's happening to them. He's selling them this idea of the good life. Uh, this happens to us through media, through the university, through pop culture, through tech. Every article that we read, every show that we watch, it, it's all doing something to us. It's all forming us into something. Nothing, just in case you're wondering, nothing is neutral. You're like, no, 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 no. Trust me, it's not. It's not neutral. It's creating you. It's seeking to create you into something. Okay, so, so first of all, we have kind of an idea of something to look out for. Um, secondly, we have an example of how to operate in our cultural moment. Um, now, this can sometimes be hard for us to get our mind around, but for the majority, uh, not for the majority, all the New Testament, um, uh, the early kind of church, and then a, lot, a large part of the Old Testament, um, the, 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 well, it would be Old Testament, it wouldn't be Christian, but it would be... Um, uh, Jewish belief, and then Christianity, obviously, when Jesus came, uh, they were always, for the most part, the minority in the culture that they found themselves in. Um, they were not the kind of culturally dominant power, right? Now, now that can feel a little bit strange for us, and, and I know that kind of culturally things have changed, and, I, and I, I, would, I would never dare to say, like, you know, we're in that same period, right? Like, we're, the, we're in, experiencing in that way, at least not in the West, right? Now, believers in other parts of the world are dying for their faith. It's a very real reality. They're not gathering in a room like this. They're not like that's that's not. They're not celebrating, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, they are, but let's let's talk about it for the West for a second. Uh, for the most part, we're you know we're not experiencing that. But but I will say, the longer I'm living life with God, the more I'm realizing uh, that it feels like I'm swimming upstream in a river. Right, like I, I like it's becoming more and more obvious to me that I am not um, going with the cultural current of the day. Like it just feels that way. 
Like I, I, I clearly can feel like, right, if you jumped in the water and you started like swimming upstream, like that's a difficult work. That's kind of what life with God feels like if, if I'm thinking about the cultural moment that I find myself in. And it's exhausting. And it becomes evident the, the more that I talk to my uh, non-believing friends who I love and care about, and, and, and want to see them step into life with God through Jesus. I, I, I want that, but it comes more and more evident the more conversations I have with them, the more that I realize we act, we're not valuing the same things in life. Uh, we're not pursuing the same things in life. We're not handling um, uh, everything. In, in the, some, some, some of the ways we are handling it the same way, and that's a convicting moment. But, but for the most part, it's like we're not there. Any major publication you pick up, you quickly realize if you're committed to life with God in the way of Jesus, that you're swimming up current. You need to just pick up a major publication. Watch a, a popular TV show. It will become apparent that the day in which we find ourselves in is a day of, of cultural difficulty, right? I mean, let me, just, let me say it another way. If you're here and you're like, no, nah, bro, I'm with the culture. I'm, I'm, feels like I'm going downstream. We should talk later because that's a problem, right? There should be a certain level of discomfort that you have when talking with your friends, your non-believing friends. Now, are, are we loving towards others? Are we seeking to understand others' positions? Are we like, are we, yes, absolutely, but there should be a sense in which we're like, oh, that, that's not right. There should be a level of discomfort with the things that you're watching at times, the things that you're listening to, the things that you're reading. We're moving culturally um, up current. We're not in the dominant culture. And so I'm reading this story of Daniel, and it's resonating deeply. I mean, think about this. You, you have these cultural outsiders who are Daniel and his friends. And then they're in this kind of extremely powerful and persuasive monarch, which is Babylon. And they withstand the pressure. It's incredible. Look, look Daniel 1, uh, verses 8 through 10. Look what it says. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself, and God granted, there it is again, God doing something in verse nine. God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life, the king. Okay, so for Daniel and his friends to partake of this food would have meant that they were ceremonially unclean, right? Now, it kind of feels weird. Like thinking about food as clean or unclean kind of feels a little bit weird to us, right? That isn't, uh, unless you're one of those like clean, unclean people and we don't want to talk to you about that. But like, but for the most part, all of us are like, ah, that's kind of weird, this like clean, unclean kind of, kind of thought. But for the Jewish people, this is a deep level of connection with God. And, and so the text tells us that, that they're in this situation and, and it becomes apparent to them that, that if they take this food, um, it would have meant that they were going to incorrectly picture God to the culture around them. And so they, they essentially uh, drew a line. They said that would be disobedient. Uh, we, I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. This is, this is what it says. It says that he, um, it says that he determined. Um, 
let's talk for a second. I, I've been, um, so I'm in this text for a, a little bit now because uh, we had some time off. And, uh, and so I've been just get extra time. And anytime I get extra time, it's probably not good for you guys. And so I, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it other than just to say it. Um, and so I think for a long time now, um, Christians have been caving to the cultural norms of their day for a while now. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, we've allowed the culture to set our pace. Now, notice that I said our pace, not the pace, because the culture is the culture. And the culture is going to be what the culture is going to be. It's going to value what it values, right? It, it just does. I think we should have some, we should be helping to inform the culture and that type of thing. But, but, but if I'm kind of observing just in ministry, in life, uh, through research, through my own personal kind of walk with God, what I'm seeing for the most part is that culture has now set our pace as believers. Uh, we've let the culture set our pace when it comes to money. Uh, we've bought the lie that wealth and the accumulation of wealth is ultimately what life is about. We, we just have. Uh, that the way to live is to look out for number one, to go where the money is, uh, to do whatever is necessary to make the most without pause for what it might be doing to your inner world or who it's turning you into. We bought it. They're setting the pace for us. We're making decisions based on monetary gain. Uh, we've let the pace be set when it comes to our sexual ethic. Uh, we've crumbled to the lie that sex and sexuality is no big deal. That biblical sexuality is offensive and antiquated. That all that matters is our personal self-fulfillment and satisfaction. That you can be married, not married, opposite sex, same sex, dating, not dating, porn that it doesn't matter as long as you're satisfied and no one's hurt. We bought it. The culture's setting the pace for us. It's one of the conversations that we have most in our church is around sexuality. And, and I think, let me just say it straight up. Like I think the church has done a tremendous amount of harm when it comes to sexuality and the conversation around sexuality. A tremendous amount of harm, right? I've sat in the room, I've sat across from people, I've talked to people, like I, like that's 100% a, a reality and a truth. There's some things that the church has to own for what it's been said when it comes to sexuality, but there is a biblical sexual ethic that is true, right, beautiful, and historic around all biblical sexuality. Not just talking same sex. I'm not talking. I'm, I'm talking across the whole board, and we've let the culture set the pace. Uh, we've recently it's become apparent that we've let the culture set the pace when it comes to um, leadership. Uh, like, can, can we just talk about politics for a second? I mean, <laughs> have you watched the news recently at all? Right. Um, I think if we've learned anything over the last few years, it seems that many Christians are supposed Christians have adopted a posture that is anything but hospitable, caring, and characterized by servanthood. That, that many who would define themselves as Christians are now allowing the, the theme of dominance and arrogance as the way forward. And we've allowed the culture to set the pace. Then instead of leading from a place of care and love, we're leading many people who are identifying themselves as Christians are leading with a posture of domination. 
it's as base level as our pace. Um, the culture has turned us into distracted, busy, and anxious people. It has. We've, we've filled our time with popular culture through shows, magazines, and music, and we've left little time for life with God. They've set the pace for us, and we bought it. We bought it. In so many ways, we bought the lie that life is about us, our choices, our desires, and our inclinations, and it's a lie. So Daniel is looking at what's in front of him, and the text tells us that he has determined to follow God regardless of the implications. Now remember, this is determination rooted in, an, in a thought and a belief and an idea that God is in control. Uh, determine that, that Hebrew word, uh, it means to lay, set down, arrange, fix, stand, intention, disposition, and courage. And it's similar to the language that we see in Ezra, Ezra 7.10. It says, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of God, obey it, and teach it statues and ordinances in Israel. We see the same language in Ruth, Ruth 1.18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was what? Determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. She's like, oh, it's, just not, it's not gonna work. Just come on. We see the negative connotation in 2 Chronicles. Uh, this is in relation to one of Israel's kings. 2 Chronicles 2, uh, 2 Chronicles 12, 14, it says, Rehoboam did what was evil. Why did he do what was evil? Because he did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. He did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. So Daniel finds himself in a long line of God's people who have to make a choice. In a long line. Uh, here's what we don't need. Um, we, we don't need cultural relevance at the expense of orthodoxy. Uh, we don't need cultural influence at the expense of biblical truth. And we don't need cultural power at the expense of integrity and goodness. What we need is we need more prophetic voices. We need more faithful witnesses. We need more people full of truth and love. We need to become people of prayer. We need to be people who are firmly fixed on the kingdom of God. We need to be people full of the Holy Spirit. We need to be people with a determination to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we need. We've grown so fearful, and this is true in my own life. So hear this, this is true in my own life. This is just what I'm seeing in, in my own heart, in my own inner world, that we're so fearful about what others think about us and what they think about our God, what they think about the Bible, that we've wholesale begin to shrink back from the truth. We've forgotten that Jesus told his earliest followers in John 15, 19, this is what Jesus said to those following him. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. A lot of us are making decisions so that the world will love us. Are we not? I do, at times. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, 
because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it and the world hates you. So we're seeing in the story with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have some young Israelite teenagers. You read the story and you're like, nah, nah. And we know Nebuchadnezzar had a tremendous amount of power, but he didn't have all the control. Real power has a heavenly origin. Isn't the gospel a testament to the fact that God is in control? Like, isn't it, if you, if you read the gospel, isn't the work that Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection, isn't it evidence that we can do this? Like, like, don't the scriptures tell us that through faith in Jesus, we get new life, we get the Holy Spirit, we get, uh, this is an old church term, but we, we get a new inner man, inner woman. Isn't this what the, the reality of the gospel is? Isn't this what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did for us? Daniel and his friends, think about this for a moment. Daniel and his friends didn't even have the good news of the gospel. They, they didn't even know the face of God was Jesus. Didn't even have it. Didn't have the Holy Spirit. Now, we could, we could hang it up there and close up, and, and, and that would be great. But, but I, was, I think we missed something really fascinating that happened. So uh, Daniel 1, 11 through 16, look, look what happens in, in the story. It says, so Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food, right? And all you vegetarians are like, yes. Uh, I live in the New Testament reality. It's full of meat. All right, here we go. Verse 16. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'll have a salad with you. Verse 16. Um, it says, so the guard removed, uh, so the guard continued to remove their food and wine that they were, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Um, so Daniel does this. Daniel devises a plan. Now, why does Daniel devise a plan here? He devises a plan because life is a lot more difficult and complex than we realize. And so Daniel wasn't like, hey, I can't do that. And the chief unit was like, okay, cool. The chief unit was like, I will die if you look different. And so Daniel says, okay, let's do this. Okay, let's do, let's do a test, right? Again, anchored by the belief that God's in control. Anchored by the belief, you, I need you to hear this, right? Anchored by this belief, like Daniel knows if he eats that food, it's wrong. And so he doesn't do it. And so it turns out that God honors their courage and faith. And, and can I say to you this morning that God honors courage and faith? He does. Now what happens next is really fascinating actually. And it's not something that I've looked at as clearly um, as I have in the past. Look at verse 17, Daniel 1, 17. Look what, what happens here. It said, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of uh, literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time, uh, at the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief unit presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
The king interviewed them, and among them, listen to this, among them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. So they begin to attend to the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the mediums in his entire kingdom. And it says Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was 70 years. So in verse four and five, we see that they're taught the best literature, the best language, right? They're offered this food. Even the vegetables that they're offered are from the king's table, the best, the best. Here's what we know happened, and we see it here at the end. Uh, Daniel and his friends fully immersed themselves in the Babylonian culture. This is what we see, and then you're like, wait, hold on a second. Like, wait, didn't we just say, like, didn't we just go on a rail against our, like, cultural current moment that we're in, the cultural, like, current? Like, no, now you're saying they fully submerged themselves into the Babylonian culture? Like, what, 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 are you, what are you saying? Now, I didn't say to isolate from the culture, right? That's an approach. It's just not an approach that honors God. It's not realistic in so many ways. Uh, they were actually doing what the prophet Jeremiah told them to do in Jeremiah 29. Do you know this passage? Uh, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. I'm about to close. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He was a prophet during this day. He says this in verse four. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Verse seven, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. There was actually another opposing prophet during this time. Uh, his name was Hananiah. And Hananiah, uh, this is basically what happened. They were, they were removed from Jerusalem, and they set up a little camp outside the city. And Hananiah is there. He's the leading prophet of the day. And he has kind of his group, his homies, his people that are with him in, in this this, and this happens in Jeremiah 28. You can go back and read it. And they're set up outside the Kabar Canal. And they have this little community there. And, and the people around Hananiah and himself, they're basically saying, don't move to the city. Like, don't, don't get into the city. We're believers. That's a wicked pagan city. Uh, it's a source of Babylonian culture. Don't have anything to do with it. Like, stay away from it. Uh, don't live there. Pray against it. We, we, we are prophesying. We believe that God's going to judge the city. That, that, that we are gonna come back out on top, that we're gonna have the cultural power, that God's gonna judge the city, so don't go into the city. God, God's gonna, gonna bring it down. Stay outside, pray against the city, and have nothing to do with the city. And then Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, says, love the city. Build homes in the city. Plant gardens in the city. Take on the city. Marry in the city. We, we know that Daniel and his friends became fully immersed in the arts of the Babylonians. They, they became students of the Babylonian way. This is what the scriptures tell us. We, we know that they excelled in it. In Daniel 2, when the king set out the decree to kill the wise men, uh, the magicians, the mediums, they went after Daniel and his friends. This is how good that they were. We, we know that. We see it in the scripture. So which is it? Is it watch out for the culture or is it excel in the culture? Yes. Yes. 
Jesus in Matthew 10, 16, told those following him to be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Um, I think the call, the call is to go in the freedom. Here it is. The call, the call is to go in the freedom that we've received in the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's to know and study the Bible. It's to understand its teachings, which many of them run counterculture. It's to be full of the Holy Spirit. It's to be committed to a local church. It's to hold to the historical teachings of Christianity. And also... Be a great designer. Be a great baker. Be a great professional. Be a great healthcare professional. Study your field. Get really good at it. Make your company better. Influence the culture. Immerse yourself in it. Just don't forget who you belong to. Just don't forget whose you are, who you belong to.